The Lord be with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Heavenly, gracious, and loving Father, we thank Thee for this opportunity to grow in our knowledge and love of Thee through Thy Holy Word. Bless this, our study, O Lord, as we gather in the name of Thy Son, Jesus, and fill our hearts with the gift of Thy truth. This we pray in that name which is above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please come in. Please come in. For those who were not here uh, last week, this uh, study that we're doing is, um, is a joint study put out by our province, the province of the Anglican Church in North America, together with the North American Lutheran Church. The North American Lutheran Church uh, formed a few years ago uh, in response to uh, the ELCA, they believe, moving away from the gospel. And so this is a joint uh, study uh, put out by uh, these two provinces. And we have begun with holy baptism. Last week we, we looked at... Uh, all Christian baptisms are by water, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, as well as in uh, Mark sixteen sixteen. We talked about why is it necessary to specify this, and we, we spoke about the difference between Christian baptism, or baptism in the name of Jesus, from the baptism of John and proselyte baptism, when non-Jews converted to Judaism. And it's possible that there was also at that time mystery cults that incorporated some form of baptism as well. Uh, and so all of this was, uh, is to clarify that there is a distinction here. Christian baptism is not the baptism of John, uh, nor is it uh, proselyte baptism. It's something distinct uh, altogether. We talked about our belief in one baptism for the remission of sins, which we profess every week in the words of the Nicene Creed, and we looked at the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, 38 and following. We mentioned that baptism is never repeated. Uh, sometimes when people will go to a, a church that local congregation will say, would you like to be a member? And if they say yes, then those people are baptized again into that church. Or they'll say, uh, did you grow up, when were you baptized? Oh, when I was an infant. Oh, well, that doesn't count. Well, the early church is very clear on this. Yes, it does. And the scriptures are too, and we looked at some of those, and we will continue to look at some of those. But this promise from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, which is covenant language, this promise is for you and for your children, and for as many as the Lord God shall call. And, of course, we know uh, um, uh, also that uh, Jesus said, Suffer the little children unto me, and do not forbid them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And how do we enter into the kingdom of God? But through the covenant. When we enter into covenant with the king, we become members of the kingdom. And so... Uh, there's only one baptism, and the Bible's clear on this. One baptism uh, is a scriptural point uh, that must be maintained. If you're baptized again, um, uh, uh, it just 
it's maybe a renewal is the best way you can look at it. Maybe the worst way you can look at it is once you've cooked a Thanksgiving turkey, you can't stick it back in the oven a second time. It's just going to come out dry. Okay? Uh, so, so anyway. Uh, we spoke about baptism has its roots in the baptism of converts to Judaism, which we mentioned is proselyte baptism, and in circumcision, which was the sign of the Old Covenant. What is in the Old Testament in part is fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant was for men and for boys eight days uh, old. And the women were considered covered by this. And it was for Jews only. In the New Testament... The sign is for men, women, boys, and girls, and is for Jews and Gentiles. So what was in part in the Old Testament is whole in the New Testament. All are called to salvation in Christ Jesus by faith and through the waters of holy baptism. Uh, if you uh, Romans 4, 9 to 12... Uh, Paul tells us that baptism is a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh that is our, our self apart from Christ. We put off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, what's the circumcision of Christ? He tells us, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. That's actually Colossians 2, 11 to 12. And... Um, uh, I will read Romans 4, 9 to 12. Romans 4, 9 to 12. Is this blessing pronounced only upon the circumcised or also upon the uncircumcised? We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so baptism is for us the seal of the covenant. So if you feel the grace of God, let's say that you were not baptized as a child. Uh, and if so, then you should have been brought up in the life of the church and in the faith of the church every day, understanding a little bit more fully what God has given you in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. But let's say you weren't, but the grace of God was given you and your heart was stirred, as it says in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. Uh, they were cut to the heart, those who heard the gospel. Um, then already God's righteousness is at work within you. And then you enter into the covenant, that seal of the covenant, okay? And then uh, you are sealed and marked as Christ's own forever, okay? Uh, so what is it? What is holy baptism? Baptism is one of the two sacraments explicitly commanded by our Lord. This is why they're sometimes called, does anyone know the term? The dominical that's right, Father Bob. <laughs> we, don't want, we, we don't want people, we, we want people to think that you're just a, uh, a lay person who, who just said that by the Holy Spirit. So thank you, Robert. 
Thank you, Robert. Now, the dominical sacraments, dominical of our Lord. These are the two sacraments of our Lord, holy baptism and holy communion. They are generally necessary for our salvation. Okay? For those who are going to walk in, uh, as pilgrims in this life uh, within the covenant. We enter the covenant through baptism, and that new life is, is nourished with the holy sacrament of Christ's body and blood. So baptism is one of the two sacraments explicitly commanded by our Lord, one of the, the two dominical sacraments. It is participation in the new creation that Christ has inaugurated. Remember, there's the old Adam. Adam is a Hebrew word, Adam, meaning mankind, created from Adama, the dusts of the earth. Adama means earth. And the old Adam uh, was disobedient and introduced sin and its consequence death into the world. And so Jesus is the new man, the new Adam, the new Adam. He comes and he's obedient, perfect obedience he offers to God the Father. And he brings the cure for the disease, uh, forgiveness to eradicate sin and uh, eternal life to eradicate death. Okay, um, And so this is what we're participating. When we go down into those waters, it's our old self, the old Adam going down into the waters, and it's the new Adam, the new creation coming forth. Okay, So we no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ, as St. Paul says. Did I mention last week about the Roman soldiers who would keep their arms out of the water? The, the, last week I did? No, this is, this is important, and you might think that they're mocking baptism, and in, in one sense they were, but it also gives us insight into just how important they understood what I was just saying. Some Roman soldiers would sometimes keep their right arm out of the water so that when they went down into the water, their right arm would be sticking out, and then they would come up. Why do you think they would do that? because their right arm belonged to Caesar. That was their fighting arm. Now, I agree with you. You could say that mocks baptism, and I understand that point. But understand this also. Look how, important, uh, how importantly they took holy baptism. What went into that water is dead. What comes out is new and alive. What goes in that water is the old creation. What comes out of that water is the new creation and belongs to Christ, to Jesus. We live no longer for ourselves, but for Christ, St. Paul says. And so very important for us to understand that uh, we who were baptized into Christ Jesus, we no longer are to live according to ourselves, according to the flesh, but according to Christ. And this should always be our, our journey. By baptism, one is born of water and the Spirit and enters the kingdom of, uh, of God from John uh, chapter 3, verse 5. You remember when uh, Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a disciple of Christ, though a secret one, uh, comes to Christ in the night and, and, uh, and asks Jesus questions. And Jesus says that unless one is born again of water and the Spirit, 
they cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here we see in this document, as it was in the early church, those words um, refer to holy baptism. That's how the early church understood those words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. Now, I've met some Christians who say, no, 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 no. Um, Unless one's born of water, meaning of their mother from the womb, and of the spirit, that is having that spiritual um, uh, encounter with God, then they aren't saved. And they talk about spirit baptism as something different from water baptism. This is not what the scriptures are saying. This was not the faith of the early church fathers. And this is not what this document is saying. This document is saying that those words of Jesus spoken to Nicodemus, that one must be born again of water and the Spirit, uh, are referring to holy baptism, or what some might call water baptism. And of course, there's only one baptism. It gets a little confusing in the New Testament because the word baptism means to be immersed into something. And so sometimes it is used regarding the Spirit. Um, You're going to be immersed in the Spirit of God or baptized in the Spirit of God. Uh, James and John uh, come to Jesus and ask if they may, well, actually, they send their mother to ask. Um, (laughs) Jesus, can one of my sons sit on your right and the other on the left? Hey, Mom, what did he say? What did he say? Right? Um, And he says, unless uh, you're ready to drink the cup and be baptized in my baptism, right? What's he referring to? Unless you're ready to be immersed in my suffering, you cannot share in my glory. Unless you're willing to die to yourself and live for me, you cannot share in my glory. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, born anew. Blah, 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 by the way, is Greek for water in the spirit. Just wanted to clarify that. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Um, it, it really is an attempt by those who do not believe in the efficacy of baptism, that baptism actually conveys grace, um, and, that one, and that it has something to do with salvation. So they're, they're trying to stay away from that. So that's why they've reinterpreted that. But that's not what the scriptures say. That is not what he said to Nicodemus. That's not what the apostles believed, nor what the early church fathers believed. And it's not what this document is telling us today either. Okay? Um, this is the faith of the, of the church. Um, okay. Um, in baptism, God the Father adopts sinners into his family. Galatians 3.27 and Galatians 4.5, and makes them his children, John 1.12. So there's different analogies that are used. In, in one sense, when we go into those waters, our old self is, uh, is, is dead, and we are born anew. So there's one 
uh, analogy that baptism is new birth in Jesus Christ, right? And of course, if you're born, you have to be fed, which is why in the ancient church, one would be born anew through the waters of baptism, immediately chrismated or sealed with the Holy Spirit by water and the Spirit. And then that new life, if you're born, you have to be fed, that new life would be nourished continually um, with the body and blood of Jesus. And so whether an infant or an adult, one never knew a time when they were, uh, when they were excluded in any measure from the fullness of the life of Christ. If you came to Christ, you were fully his. Okay? Um, another analogy is that of being adopted. We're all adopted, right? How many children of God are there really? The right answer is one. One. Thank you, Susan. No mere man revealed this to you. Well, actually, a mere man did. But uh, um, there is only one child of God, one son of God from all eternity. There is only one who is the son of God by nature, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. But by adoption, we are brought into the relationship that Jesus has with his Father from all eternity. And then the love that the Father has had for His Son from all eternity is poured out upon us. And the Father sees us not in our sin, but sees us in His Son, Jesus Christ, which is why He is able to say when we are walking with Christ, when we're walking in repentance, when we're walking by grace, He is able to look upon us and say, here is my child in whom I am well pleased. So we are adopted into, this by the way, I don't have time to get off on this, but this is why we cannot call um, God mother. One of the reasons is because we, there's no way for us to have our own relationship with, with God. God is infinitely beyond his creation. He is infinite, we are finite. He is perfectly holy and we are sinful. As they say in Maine, you can't get there from here. And so God comes to us because we could not go to God. You could do good works from now until the end of your life, and you will be no closer to attaining God than when you first began. And so God comes to you. God comes to me. God comes to us in the person of Jesus. And it's into that relationship, the relationship that Jesus shares with his father that we are adopted into. We don't have our own relationship with, with God. We are adopted into the relationship that Jesus shares with his father. And Jesus calls him father. And so we call him father because we have no relationship with God in heaven apart from Jesus Christ. Does everyone under, does that make sense? To everyone? Okay. Um, for those of you at home who were very upset with that, I can't hear you. So, you know, okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So I didn't want to get off of that tangent. I just want to make that point, is that we are adopted. So one is that in baptism we are born again, 
Another analogy is that we are adopted and we become his children, technically, theologically, because we are grafted, or we are adopted, rather, into Jesus. We, we actually um, uh, take on his identity uh, um, as, as the Son of God and as the, the firstborn um, hold, who holds preeminence, okay? Um, we're actually sons of God. Whether male or female, we are sons of God, okay? Because we're, we're baptized into Jesus. Um, uh, but we often use, and I believe the scripture in one or two places uses the term child of God as, as well, as well. So, why baptize? Why baptize? We baptize because Christ commanded his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. I mentioned last week that all, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's with that authority that I now send you. As the Father sent me into the world, I am now sending you into the world. And it's with the authority of heaven and earth that Jesus says, not just to bishops, priests, or deacons, but to each and every one of you, each and every one of us, go. We go with the authority of Jesus Christ, who has the authority of heaven and earth. And we are to baptize people that they may be sealed in Christ Jesus too, that they may be adopted as his uh, sons, sons and daughters. And of course, then there's the, another analogy in baptism. Uh, does anyone know it? The first one is we're, we're born in baptism. The second is we are adopted as God's children. And what's the third? What's that? We are married, Right. Jesus is groom, and the church collectively is the bride. Collectively is the bride. No individual is the bride of Christ. The church collectively is the bride of Christ and is united to Jesus, the groom. And together, they celebrate the wedding banquet, which is the Holy Eucharist. You see that connection every time? If you're born again, you got to be fed, right? Uh, if you're adopted children uh, of God, you have to be fed. If you're married, then you, you, know, you celebrate that wedding banquet, okay? That wedding banquet. Obedience to this command and use of this Trinitarian formula have always been the practice of the historic church. No other names or formulas may be used. Okay, we covered that a lot last week. Again, I commend to you, look, Google up the Didache. It's not that long. Read it. It talks about uh, baptism in the, with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It, it talks about full immersion uh, versus uh, pouring and, and even uh, just a little bit over the head, all of these things being dealt with in the very early days of, of the church. Any questions so far? Any questions? 
um, the significance of baptism is is um, incredible, and and it's it's so united to salvation. It's so united to salvation because in it we are joined to Christ. We are marked as Christ's own forever. You know, if you damage your car, right, and you need a new paint job and uh, some work on it, what's the ad? Uh, uh-oh, better get Mako, right? Uh-oh, better get Mako. Well, uh, think of that is that we're damaged because of sin. And we're in, need, we're in need of being renewed. And so, uh-oh, better get Mako. You better get marked as Christ's own, right? Marked as Christ's own forever, forever, okay? So very important that we understand, um, yes, the Holy Spirit can be at work in someone's heart and life prior to baptism, but baptism is that seal and entrance into the covenant. So it's entrance into the covenant, it's being born again, it's becoming an adopted child of God by grace, and it's uh, being joined to Christ, becoming part of the bride. There's also the analogy, of course, of, of being the body of Christ. All who are baptized are the body of Christ. Yes. Walk away from Christ and God and the church. Um, it's not some uh, automatic cure. Right. Yeah, we mentioned this last week, and there are some that teach that that if you're baptized, you have a ticket to ride. And um, you may remember the term. I'm going to admit in front of the whole world here that I can't think of the term in Latin for it, where the sacraments are almost like a, a ticket to ride. They're called. That word. And um, I'll look it up and, and let you know next week. Um, but it, yeah, it's almost, well, I've been baptized, so regardless of what I do, I'm saved. Right? Um, and, and yeah, so it's, it's that concept. And, um, and it's, uh, so in knee-jerk reaction against that, there were those who wanted to emphasize faith. As, as, the, as what's necessary for salvation. Saved by grace through faith. He who um, believes in his heart and professes with his lips, it actually says shall be saved, future tense, but they ignore that. And, and, um, uh, but what they're trying to do is, one is trying to emphasize the sacrament and the other is trying to emphasize the faith. And as I said last week, that's like trying to argue over which side of a quarter is worth 25 cents, heads or tails. Right? Um, if you're baptized uh, as a baby, you should be brought up in the faith. And if you have faith, you should be baptized. But yes, um, I think part of the problem, too, is that um, there are Christians who believe in what's called eternal security, which means once saved, always saved. Uh, and so you can't walk away from it. Um, you know, they would use passages like what, what God, the good work that he's begun in you, he will see to fruition. Now there's a whole bunch of passages that would say the opposite. But um, 
I think that that's, that's the issue. So uh, there's, they're emphasizing that, that gift of faith. And, uh, but yes, no, we believe that, that, um, that even the baptized, and it, with great sadness we say this, can reject that gift that was given them in Jesus Christ and can walk away. Um, the Lord will never force you to accept the gift that he has given you. He does not compulse us, you know, to believe, right? Um, uh, he invites us to believe, okay? Thank you, Father Bob. Okay. Um, we go on then to who should be baptized. Well, everyone, right? Everyone um, you know, we've we, we got to be out there telling this culture, particularly this culture, about Jesus. And when they say, what must I do? Well, Peter already answers that question in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. What must you do if you've heard the gospel and, you're, and you feel the Spirit within you? Be baptized, every one of you. Um, so who should be baptized? All those who profess faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized by the church. Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Children also are baptized. This includes infants. Just as infants were circumcised, infants are baptized. At no point did Jesus ever say, look, I understand that, you know, we all being Jews that we, you know, our understanding is that you enter into the covenant, you receive the sign of the covenant when you're eight days old, if you're a male, right? So don't confuse that with baptism, because that can only happen when you're, you're 12 or 14 or older when you profess Jesus, right? At no point does Jesus say that. In fact, he says, bring the little children to me and do not forbid them, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. Okay. Um, so just as children were received circumcision at the age of eight days old, so um, our children are baptized. Children also are baptized. This includes infants. Just as infants were circumcised, infants are baptized. Peter proclaims, the promise, that is covenant language again, is for you and your children. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 39. The households, whole households, of Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Stephanus, and Cornelius were baptized. Households included infants and children. Okay. And there's references here. Acts of the Apostles, 16, 15. Also, 16.33. 1 Corinthians 1.16. Acts of the Apostles 10.1-2 and 46-48. So, any, any questions there? What the church really doesn't have any business doing is baptizing um, children of non-believers. Um, the closest I have come to it uh, is when someone has said, look, I'd like to have my child baptized, but I'm going to admit I, I'm really not there myself. 
in my life's journey. But I, there's something in me that wants them baptized, and then we'll explore that together. And if they will agree to let the grandparents or godparents bring that child every week to church and to uh, have a say over their spiritual life, um, then I'll agree to, to do the baptism. But there really is no justification for, for baptizing um, children of non, non-believers. Okay. Questions on, on that? It's a, it's a big deal um, uh, in Christianity. Uh, a lot of um, denominations will not baptize infants, right? Uh, and yet, this has been the practice from the beginning, as we have seen. We have seen here. If that was a no-no, Jesus would have had to clarify, because for these Jews, people received the sign of the covenant very early, very early, eight days old, right? Okay. Yes, Diane. Yes, absolutely, and that they would be willing to entrust that child to the to the godparent to bring to church and so forth and so on. Um, we've had the, those cases here where the child was brought by somebody else. Um, we've I've also had people agree to that, and I don't see them afterwards. Uh, so, I absolutely. And I, I do believe in the efficacy of baptism, so I also believe um, uh, that, um, uh, that the seed is planted within that child. And, uh, you know, a good analogy is I remember years ago, um, I had a fire going in the fireplace at a cottage we were renting up in Maine. And uh, the, I, I fell asleep, and the fire seemed, when I woke up, seemed to be gone. And then I took the, uh, the, the bellow, you know, and went like this. And the fire just came alive. I often think of that, that um, sometimes people who are baptized without the gift of faith, um, that a seed is still implanted within them. And when the, the breath of God, like a bellow, a divine bellow, Is that respectful to say about the Holy Spirit, the divine bellow? I hope so. Um, Comes and touches that seed, then that seed becomes a roaring fire uh, within them. So there's there's something to be said to that. Um, But normally, um, it should be persons who are baptized as children are brought up in the faith, and adults who come to faith should be baptized. Um, what does God do in baptism? Remember, it's God who baptizes. Um, I hope Christine won't mind me mentioning this, but when we were first dating, um, it was very hard for her to accept that baptism had anything to do with salvation because uh, salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God. And so how can this human work have anything to do with salvation. Uh, until one day, you know, I, I said to her, 
oh, wait a minute. You see baptism as something that we're doing rather than something God is doing. Am I articulating it correctly? Good. I didn't want to be in trouble there. Um, for a second there, I thought we were in trouble. Um, and uh, uh, so um, it, it's God who's doing the work in baptism. It is God who baptizes, okay? Um, it is uh, God that makes those waters uh, holy and uses them as a vehicle of grace to bring that child or adult into Christ Jesus in all those ways that we've been talking about, okay? So it's God who baptizes. So what does God do in baptism? One, baptism is a washing, 1 Corinthians 6.11, that cleanses from sin. From Acts 22.16, be baptized and wash away your sins. As I mentioned also, uh, remember Paul, when he was Saul, he was on, on his way to Damascus, and he encounters the risen Lord, and he's thrown from his horse, and he's blinded, and he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And of course, Jesus, I'm Paul, Saul, was persecuting the church. And yet Jesus so identifies himself with his bride that he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. To persecute the, the bride was to persecute the groom because they are one. No longer two, but one. Right? And a lot of people would identify that conversion moment that Paul has, that encounter with the risen Lord, as the moment that he is fully saved. And yet, when he gets to Ananias and tells him what took place on the road, Ananias says to him, why are you tarrying? Arise, call on the name of the Lord, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That seal of the covenant. Right? And as I mentioned, if baptism is only a public witness to what God has already accomplished, then to whom was Paul witnessing? Ananias? Who was already a believer? Who was already saved? That wouldn't make any sense. No, there was Ananias understood, as we are to understand, there is something about baptism that really does, that's efficacious, where God's grace is at work to unite us to the person of Jesus. The Spirit brings us into Jesus, and in Jesus we know God in heaven as our Father. Thus Trinitarian. Baptism unites us. Also, I want to mention again, I did last week, the, the eunuch of Ethiopia. Remember Philip the deacon is brought to him? And he's reading Isaiah, the passage about the suffering servant. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip explains it to him. And this is all about the suffering servant, which of course is fulfilled in Jesus and in his death on the cross. But obviously, whatever it was that Philip was sharing had a lot to do with baptism. 
I, he took Isaiah. Is it 53, the suffering servant? 53? Right? Relates it to Jesus and his cross. And then all of a sudden, this eunuch wants to be baptized. Here's water right here on the side of the road. What's to prevent me from being baptized? So whatever Philip, the deacon, had shared with him about the death uh, uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ foreshadowed, prophesied uh, through I, uh, um, Isaiah had to do with baptism. Of course, this isn't unusual because this is the same Philip the deacon who went down to Samaria and it says, preach Jesus. And then suddenly it says, as many as heard him and received his word wanted to be baptized. So Philip the deacon is always relating baptism to Jesus. And again, to whom, if it's only a public witness, to whom was the eunuch witnessing? Philip the deacon? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Baptism unites us with Christ in his death and resurrection. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were buried into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3-4. So our resurrected life in the new man, the new Adam, begins now, the day we are baptized. I believe, and I'm paraphrasing the story here, it was John Paul II who was asked by a reporter what the greatest day of his life was. Was it when he um, was made Pope? And he said, no. And they said, oh, was it when you were made a bishop or a priest? And he said, no. And they said, well, what then? What is the greatest day of your life? And John Paul II said, the greatest day of my life, I don't remember. It was the day... I was baptized into Jesus. Right? Um, so, you know, wonderful story. I grew up not only knowing my birthday, July 16th, but knowing the day I was baptized, which is August 11th. That was a very big day. And so I still remember that to this day. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with Jesus in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith. Colossians 2.12. Thus baptism joins us to Christ. From Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I was talking to... Um, uh, another ordained minister who I know, and he says, you know, um, we don't put on all those vestments that you, like you wear. Because, you know, we don't want to draw attention to, to ourselves. And I said, ah, you're actually misunderstanding what those vestments are all about. Each one of them represents something about Christ. It's actually meant to diminish the particular person and to reveal the one true priest who is Jesus. We have put on Christ. The very first garment 
that a bishop, priest, or deacon puts on is the, uh, the white alb. Well, alb means white, so I guess that's a bit of... But anyway, the alb. It's like, what color is George Washington's white horse? Well, it's white. So what color is your alb? Well, it's white. Right? You put on the alb. Why? This is the wedding garment. You have been joined to Christ. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You do not go into the sanctuary of God trusting in yourself for your own righteousness, but in His. Right. Um, and then the second uh, is the cincture. Because uh, you are a servant. You are bound. Again, you go not on your own authority, but the authority of Christ. But the stole itself represents Christ having put on humanity, so we put on Christ. And then the chasuble, the glory of the, of the, of the one true priest, our Lord in heaven. So every, everything is actually meant to, dis, to diminish the particular person and to exalt the one true priest, Jesus Christ. Now, I know it's hard because in some of those things, I look pretty good. But that's not what you're supposed to see. Okay. We put on Christ, just as it says in Galatians 3.12. I think most people would think that we're a cult if we did this, but it would be really cool in one sense that every person who has come to Christ by faith and baptism would come in the church, and the first thing they would do is put on a white robe. Why? They're coming into the church not trusting in their own righteousness, but in Christ, acknowledging that they are part of his body, that they are part of the bride, that they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right? So we'd all come in and, and then put on an alb. Don't worry, you guys all look scared. I'm not going to ask you to do that. Okay. Somebody get Emily's um, measurements, please. Okay. <laughs> okay. Our life in Christ, um, well, again, what does God do in baptism? Our life in Christ, it's a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 begins by being, again, born of water in the Spirit at baptism from John 3.6 and will be fulfilled in union with the triune God in the new heaven and the new earth where all things are made new. Revelation 21.5. That's when everything will be brought to fruition. Everything that has begun by God becoming man in the person of Jesus, by his, life, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his glorious ascension, his sending of the Holy Spirit, that life which we have in him by faith and baptism will all come to fruition at the second coming of our Lord. And we long for, for that day. We long for that day. Are there any questions? Or we still have a few minutes. We can, we can keep plugging along. Um, faith. Faith is, has an important role in baptism. Whether an infant is brought to baptism and is covered by the faith of the covenant, the faith of the community, 
and then they grow up understanding a little bit more fully that which they have received by, by God uh, until they publicly profess this faith as their own and receive the laying on of hands by the bishops for the, uh, by a bishop for the uh, stirring up of the Spirit within them, or whether uh, it's an adult who is baptized. Faith uh, is, is essential to our understanding. Unfortunately, there are those who emphasize baptism at the expense of the, the uh, role of faith, and there are those who emphasize faith at the expense of the gift of God given us in baptism. Okay. So faith. Baptism is God's regenerative work. What does regenerative mean? Making new, being born again, being regenerate, right? It's God who is making you new. He created you, but we are conceived and born into a fallen humanity that's out of right relationship with God. And so he begins to refashion us, to remold us, to remake us in the image of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect icon of God. Colossians 1.15, I believe. Jesus Christ is the perfect icon, the perfect image of the invisible God. So baptism is God's regenerative work. To be received by faith and faithfulness. That is not just a one-time deal. Like when I got married to Christine, um, we didn't stand before the Lord and Bishop Ackerman and our family and friends and church family and, uh, and say, in this moment, uh, you know, I love you, right? And then afterwards, well, that was nice, right? No, we're to make that commitment, and then we are to live in that commitment. Does, does that make sense? And so we come by faith, but we are to continue in faithfulness. In faithfulness. So baptism is God's regenerative work to be received by faith and faithfulness through life in Christ. For those who do not live life in Christ, baptism does not guarantee final salvation. There it is, Father Bob. It is not a ticket to ride. You can't live apart from the Lordship of Jesus your whole life without repentance and die and then, you know, go before the Lord and say, well, I got this baptismal certificate right here, signed by Archdeacon Michael McKinnon himself. Whoa, Jesus, wow. Now that's not impressive at all, right? <laughs> you see, it is not a guarantee. It is not a guarantee. It's a beginning, like in marriage, right? You have the marriage, but it's the beginning, I mean, you have the day of, of, of matrimony, but it's the beginning of the marriage, right? Um, so for those who do not live life in Christ, baptism does not guarantee final salvation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So believes and is baptized. So we must continue 
to live out our baptism by faith. Susan. Um, Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. It doesn't say it here, but it goes on to say, and he who does not believe is condemned already. So whether baptized or not, if, if, you, um, if you don't have that faith, we, live, we are baptized, we are married, we live out our baptism, that marriage with Christ, by faith and faithfulness, Right? And when we fall, and we will sometimes, right? When we fall, we must repent. We must repent. And immediately we are washed anew in the blood of Christ. Okay? But we must repent. I think I'm going to stop there because this is a great place for us to continue um, next week. And... um, so any final questions? Any final questions? Yes, Diane. Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. Does that sound right? Yes, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. Did, ache, yeah. Didache means teaching of the twelve. Yes. About what in baptism? The vestments. Does the priestly vestments have anything to do with baptism? Yes, the very first one that they put on the alb represents that they have been joined to Christ in baptism and washed in his blood. And we see in Revelation that all who are in Christ, who have been washed in his blood, were given um, these, these wedding um, uh, vestments, garments to wear. Yeah. Good question, Becca. Anyone else? Yeah, at baptism. One of, the, one of the things that we do give to a child, as well as an adult, is a, a white garment, usually in the form of a stole, the idea that, that as the stole of the priest, Christ has put on humanity, so you are putting on Christ. Yes, absolutely. Maybe that's what we should, we should all wear. We should all come in and, and put on you, you know, a, white, a white stole. Let's see how that goes over with the bishop. <laughs> yes. What's that? I don't know about the Episcopal Church. We always, I think we always did when we were in the Episcopal Church, give a white stole. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll get you a white stole. Anyone else? Well, thank you so much. Next week, uh, Bishop Charlie will be here, and of course, um, I'll give him some opportunity probably to speak. So, yeah. So God bless you.